Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Brady Kreitzer, author of War in the Peaceable Kingdom. Brady Kreitzer, author of War in the Peaceable Kingdom, the Catanning Raid of 1756. Where is Catanning? Uh, Catanning is about, about 40 miles north of Fort Duquesne, as the sources say, uh, but it's right up Route 28 from Pittsburgh. Uh, it's about a, about a 55 to one hour drive if you're, if you're doing it at the right time of day. Uh, but it's very much one of these places that is like a very nondescript Western Pennsylvania story that we know, flourishing town, the kind of place that 50, 60 years ago, you wouldn't have to leave town much for work, for the dentist, for the doctors, to go grocery shopping. Uh, and it's one of these places that's trying to reinvent itself now in the 21st century uh, in the wake of the, the loss of manufacturing in the region. But in the 18th century, uh, it was a pretty happening place and a place that most people uh, in London or in France maybe would have heard of before. How would they have heard of it? Uh, Catanning is, is one of the premier metropolitan native regions in North America. Uh, it comes up very unnaturally in that it's, a, it's originally a settlement for refugees, uh, which maybe we'll talk about the, the history of the Delaware people who live there, but as we get into the 1750s, uh, in a place that is wild and expansive and vast like the Ohio country is, uh, it's one of the, the premier Indian villages of the region. And very few Europeans ever see it, if, if except for the French agents who are uh, using it as a launch pad to, to raid Pennsylvania and English villages. And you mentioned the Delawares. Was that the tribe that, that populated it? The Delaware story uh, is one that a lot of Pennsylvanians are familiar with. Uh, I think the Catanning story, the story of the western Delaware, far less so. It's one of the, the great things I think I discovered about writing this book was the shifting political ground in Pennsylvania in the 1750s. But the Delaware begin their story in what they called the Lenape Hawking. They called themselves the Lenny Lenape, the original people. How'd they get the name Delaware? That was courtesy of the English. Uh, a nice favor they gave to them. They came here and gave them a name that they were more comfortable saying than the original people. Did the Lenape then adopt that name, call themselves that? Uh, I think when it was expedient for trade, they would have identified as that. But as, as we'll see with the Western Delaware, this sort of faction that's very conservative and very uh, extreme in their politics, I don't think they would have appreciated the gesture much uh, as it was sort of an identity that they didn't, they didn't want to take on themselves. So when the Swedes and the Dutch and William Penn first came to Pennsylvania, was it the Lenape they encountered? Yeah, that's a really important part of the story. It's, it's, it, this story, in, in a big sense, is a story, again, of shifting political ground, political revolutions of all types, uh, political revolutions between parties and Philadelphia political revolutions between uh, settlers from 
uh, Swede, from Sweden, from, from Scotland, from Ireland, uh, and the English. And one of the big political revolutions is the native revolution that most people aren't familiar with. Uh, but the Lenape will be established in what is today the Delaware River Valley uh, for centuries before Europeans ever arrive. And when they do come here, they find that as much as, say for example, the Dutch like to draw out a big plot of land on a map and say, this is New Amsterdam, this belongs to us, they're really a small population of people surrounded by literally thousands of natives who have their own way of life that has been here for much longer. So whenever you see the Delaware, as they'll come to be known, the Lenny Lenape, interacting with Europeans, and this is again something that I think we've lost sight of, uh, we, we see them really dictating the terms early on of that relationship in the 17th century and the 1600s. Uh, they're very clear that Europeans can live in their land uh, so long as it's a trade-based relationship. They don't want to see Europeans come here and make permanent settlements because they know how that goes. They've seen it happen in Virginia. They've seen it happen in New England. And it's very much in terms of colonization, first by the Dutch, then by William Penn and the English, is going to be done on their terms. 1631, uh, the Delaware will draw a line in the sand at a place in what is today uh, Delaware, the state, called Swanendale. It's a, it's a Dutch settlement. Uh, the Dutch will settle there. They'll set up a permanent plantation, which is directly against the Delaware's directive. And the Delaware will wipe out the entire settlement. It will be a, a pretty terrible event um, for, the, for the European settlers in this region. It's a, it's a watershed moment because it reinforces that the Delaware's rules will be supreme in the area. And when William Penn comes in the 1680s, we like to tell the story of his peaceable kingdom. It's in the title of the book. But he comes here and he's given all this credit for being so benevolent and giving fair prices to the Indians and all of these things. But if you read Penn's notes, he knew coming in, if you come here and you try to shake things up, they will wipe you out. So I think the peaceable kingdom story, the holy experiment of Quakerism where everyone is treated equally and the land deals are fair, I think that was true. I think that was in Penn's heart. But the reality is, had he come here doing anything else, uh, the story might be very different. So when William Penn landed, if you had looked at a map and drawn out the territory of the Lenape, where did it cover? It's really difficult to say. What I would describe it as is, again, most of New Jersey, most of eastern PA, and even up into Manhattan. I mean, this was a big amorphous area, but the Delaware weren't really like other Indian powers. You know, the, the Iroquois had a, had a system in New York that was almost like a federal system, individual nations meeting in, in council. But the Delaware were much less uh, a political group as they were a people living a shared way of life. So every, every village was its own kingdom for the Delaware. But they recognized that other villages spoke their same language and cooked foods in the same way and, and interacted in the same way. Were they subject to the Iroquois? That would be part of the, the, the loss the Delaware experience. As the Pennsylvanians come here, when William Penn is still alive, he gives them fair deals. They coexist peacefully. But over time, uh, especially when William Penn leaves and his, his heirs take over the colony, they are not nearly as benevolent as, as Penn is. Uh, and what you start to see is the Delaware lose huge amounts of land. Pennsylvania grows from 8,000 to 15,000 to 25,000. And all that growth is happening in the Delaware homeland. So the Delaware are going to be pushed further and further east. 
Uh, and depending how you felt about the future of the Delaware people would depend on how far uh, west, rather, you went. Uh, some we call the Wyoming Delaware chose to live in what is today the Susquehanna River Valley, the Wyoming Valley. They wanted their own separation from the English, but they believed honoring the legacy of William Penn and the peaceable kingdom, they could live with the English. Some stayed right in the Delaware River Valley and were virtually forced to give up their Delaware identity. But another group will travel far to the west, to the Allegheny River Valley, a place that is, you know, in their minds might as well be on another planet it's so far away. And they will foster, I think, a hostile and belligerent connection to the past. That They want to reestablish the Delaware, the original way of life, the Lenny Lenape, the original way of life, uh, away from all Europeans. So in that regard, the Delaware world is really fracturing as what we think of as the Pennsylvania world is really starting to, to be established. Well, the, was it the Iroquois, is that synonymous with the Six, na six Nations? Yes. So getting to your question, uh, as the Delaware are moving further and further west, there are concessions to be made. Just like today you can't squat on a piece of land and build a home because someone owns it, uh, in the minds of the greatest Indian superpower in the Northeast, the Iroquois, they owned the Ohio country, today's western Pennsylvania. So for the Delaware, the western Delaware, as they call themselves, to move to the Allegheny River Valley, part of that was they had to accept the subjugation of the, the vast and mighty Iroquois Confederacy. So they were making that concession, losing that freedom. Uh, to at least live on their own and not lose that same freedom to Europeans coming by the waves now. Now you say that the Iroquois considered the Lenape to be women. Yes. Can you explain what that means and why that's not an insult? That is, that is such a difficult thing. I think it's one of the, the most difficult reasons people don't study this field more is that you have to adjust your thinking to an entirely foreign system. I mean, if you looked at the English political system and you look at our political system, it translates really well because we come from that same branch, so to speak. Uh, but in the Indian world, the politics are so different that uh, you see words like women, like gender assignments used. So the Iroquois will repeatedly call the Delaware women. And that very specifically means they lose the ability to declare war on their own. If they're going to fight, they'll now fight only when the Iroquois tell them to uh, and only when their cause is, is is verified by the Iroquois Confederacy. So the label of woman is not to say that they have some feminine attribute, but it's literally a specific declaration that the Delaware, as being subjects of the Iroquois now, uh, will give up their right to wage war. As this book shows, they don't really care much for that, and they will wage war on their own. Uh, but that word, women, is one of these really important sort of pieces of, of Indian culture, the, the, the gender assignment. Uh, in a political way. But you do say within the Lenape, a Lenape woman, the actual women in the Lenape tribe, were free to marry a man of her own choosing and equally free to pursue divorce. Perhaps more galling to European sensibilities was the notion that when personal ownership of land, equipment, or the home itself came into dispute, it was always the woman who was the perceived owner of the property. It's, it's again, it's, it's the assignment of gender. Uh, one of the things we see in hunting, gathering, or tribal societies around the world. And it's, it's sort of uh, one of these issues that Europeans have been adjusting to. And it's the biggest difference for them going back 300 years has been that in these societies of hunting and gathering, women tend to be considered heads of the household, breadwinners. Uh, family line passes down through them. The oldest grandmother 
is the most powerful person. And that has to do with at a basic level, you know, who brings home the food. If you go hunting today, we have high-powered rifles and compound bows. You go hunting five times, you might get one deer, maybe not. Now, if you're doing that same hunting with, not, with sharp rocks and sticks, uh, it's going to be even harder. Women, it's much easier to catch a berry or a nut. So they're always bringing home food. And this goes back thousands of years. But even in pre-farming cultures, women were supreme in the, in the families. Uh, the notion of, of, of a, a patrilineal system, the man ruling the family, that is uniquely in, in what we would think of as agricultural societies over many years. So the European ethos. And it's one of the many ways that the European world and the Indian world collide in the, in the 17th and 18th century. So your book is dated 1756, but in the 1750s, if you were to look for the Pennsylvania frontier and head west from Philadelphia, when would you reach what you'd call the, the west or the frontier? I think you can still see this today. It drives my family and friends crazy because I'm always stopping when I'm driving across the state uh, to take in these vistas and views. Uh, but when you're driving east to west and you're on the Pennsylvania Turnpike or you're on Route 30, there is a clear point after Carlisle. Uh, when you see the, the Allegheny Mountains rise up out of the ground, and they come up very abruptly and very sharply, but they clearly are essentially a wall of, of nature in front of you. And it, it could have been a wall for those people. Anything beyond that was the dark and dangerous frontier. It was the back country, they would have called it. And those mountains represented a full stop of European growth at that point. If you cross those mountains headed west to east, you see historical markers, you see signs. This was here, this town was there, that fort was there in the 1730s, in the 1740s. But when you go over the mountains, when you hit Breezewood, you're in a whole different ballgame now because the historical markers are much later for the reasons we'll talk about, uh, the, the very difficult realities of living on the frontier. So who are the Europeans who settled on that side of the mountain, the west side of the mountain? Well, there, weren't, there wasn't much settlement yet. Uh, there was a very clear system set up in the New World for Europeans coming over here. Part of the draw of the New World is that you're told that the, the problems and hindrances of the old way, very few people own land, you are very much going to stay in the world you're born into, are washed away in the New World. But when immigrants get here from the Scots-Irish to the Swedes to the Finns, uh, and again this is a very English world on the, on the eastern seaboard, they find that their uh, fresh and equal new start in the new world is not what it was. Uh, the English in Philadelphia will tell them, welcome, uh, please move west. Because there's a lot of angry people there, Indians who want to kill us. It would be great if you could maybe stand between the, us and them. So you have a lot of Scots-Irish settlers there, a lot of Presbyterians, a lot of Germans with their many different faiths coming to the new world, seeing that they aren't necessarily welcome in Philadelphia. There's an old order there by the 1750s, and they move west, and they are effectively the buffer zone between the horrible dangers of the frontier and what we think of as the settled east of Philadelphia. You say the Scots-Irish harbored an intense animosity toward the Quaker elites of the capital, meaning Philadelphia. Yeah, absolutely. You listen to politics today, and you hear the word elites thrown around a lot, and it's never in a good way. You know, you never want to be an elite to the person that you're talking about that with. Uh, so when the Scots-Irish would get here, they'd come here selling everything they have back home, if not being indentured to somebody when they already get here for the, the cost of travel. And they see Philadelphia. It's the second or third biggest city in the British world. It's amazing. 
uh, and they find that as they move through the city, they're continuously pushed out and further away. And they're told there's more land you can ever dream of back home, just a little bit on the other side of Carlisle. And if you can go there and settle and, and do your part for the colony, that would be, that would be great. But the Scots-Irish came here, I think, with a history of subjugation anyway. They were fiercely independent. They were fiercely Presbyterian. So their individual communities, in their minds, were entities all to their own. And Sundays at, at, at Mass, you would have these, uh, these you know, uh, sessions of religious practice followed by long political arguments because the Presbyterian uh, congregation and their meetings was ground zero for politics for them. So there was this animosity toward the East, and, and some that was fair, some that was not, but they saw the Quaker establishment as the problem. They had most of the money, the Quakers, uh, they held most of the land, William Penn and his descendants, and as we see when, when the heat is turned up in the form of Indian War, uh, those, those rifts really split open in a big way. Uh, how was Pennsylvania governed at the time? It had a governor, it had the Penn family, it had the yeah. Quakers. How, how did it all, who had authority? It, it was something I think that we would, we would recognize today as a functional government. You know, we have this idea that our framers of our Constitution drew up our government from scratch, but it was very much taken from the English ethos. Uh, the idea that you have an executive or something of an executive branch, the king, and you have two houses of of a legislature, the lower house and the upper house. And that was the essence of being English in the 18th century. George Washington was an Englishman until he wasn't. And so was Jefferson. Uh, the French were the great other. They had one absolute king. He controlled everything. Englishness was this separation of power in the government. So whenever we made our government here in the 1780s, we improved, we think, upon their system. So when we look at the colonies of England, if that's the essence of Englishness, uh, you see each individual colony mimicking that too. There was an executive, which would be the governor. There was an assembly, which was the lower house, and that's really where the people's vote was held. And then there was an upper house, which was called the provincial council, and in the context of this story, they were in lockstep with, with uh, the governor all the way. And they usually represented the very wealthy interests. So if you're the average person, and you want to serve or you want to have your interests heard, your vote is best heard in the assembly, that's the lower house. It is not unlike our system today. Uh, the way our system was drawn up, we were not supposed to vote in the USA for Senate. That's only in the middle of the 20th century that we voted for senators, governors picked them. Our voice was always the House of Representatives, and that is a direct adoption from the English system, and that's the system that ruled Pennsylvania. So you had an upper house, a lower house, and a governor. And they all had to be in agreement for any law to pass. And then what authority did the Penn family have? The Penn family uh, were called the proprietors. And Pennsylvania was really unique with the exception of, of Maryland in the new world of having this. Uh, but Pennsylvania was not a royal colony where you had a governor and a legislature independent. It was a proprietary colony. So. The governor was always William Penn or a descendant of William Penn. It was almost medieval in that way. And William Penn was the uh, governor. His son Thomas Penn and his other son Richard will become kind of dual acting governors after his death. Uh, and they will hold all the political power. Does that mean they owned all the land? It was theirs. It was like a medieval fiefdom for them. 
and they made very clear, made very clear to be sure, they would never be taxed on that land. So they were interested in being English, this, you know, European style of living. They didn't want to live in Pennsylvania. Oh, they, his sons lived in? They lived overseas. Yeah. So they would appoint uh, what we call a lieutenant governor or an acting governor in their place. Uh, and that is not uncommon either. So the Penns sort of were the final say on what Pennsylvania does. And as other colonies are flourishing without that, a lot of people in Pennsylvania say, we need to change this. Make it a royal colony. Get the pens out of the story. Because one of the things they, they say is a requirement is that uh, whoever is the governor they appoint, by law, he, they make them sign contracts. The one thing they will never do is raise a single cent on any uh, taxable lands of the pens. That's their number one obligation. Do not tax our estates. Uh, and this will, again, be a problem throughout Pennsylvania's history, but under the threat of war, it's, it's, a, it's full chaos. The assembly could tax other people than the Pens? Yeah, they could tax the people that voted for them. Uh, they could ask for revenue from the Pens estates, which were vast. But again, the governor, the executive, has that veto ability. And if any law comes to their desk that raises revenue through taxing the Pens lands, even though they live very far away, it would be an immediate veto. And legally, that governor had to. At some point, uh, he was even threatened with a jail sentence if he taxed or signed a bill that taxed Penn's land. It sounds like if you compare William Penn and his relationship with the Indians or William Penn's philosophy in general to his sons, that the, the apple fell pretty far, far from the tree. Pretty far. Um, I would say William Penn was the outlier. William Penn was, I, I think, a genuinely sincere religious person who wanted to do something here. People in New England love to talk about the pilgrims and looking for religious freedom. But if you were a non-Puritan in New England in the 17th century uh, and you were exiled for not being Puritan, you wouldn't have felt like you had religious freedom. They had religious isolation. That's why they left Europe. They wanted to worship their way, but not a place for all people. Penn offered a place for all people. Germans move here. Swedes moved here. Lutherans, Calvinists, Jews, Muslims actually lived in, in colonial Pennsylvania, and the Indians. So Penn was one of these you know, genuinely benevolent people. Getting back to the earlier point, though, about how he was sort of forced into that position, there was an Indian war in Virginia in, 1675, uh, in, in the 1670s, Bacon's Rebellion. There was an Indian war in Massachusetts, uh, King Philip's War, Metacom's War in 1675. That's all seven, eight years before Penn gets here. So he knows what's waiting for him if he tries to muscle his way into this region. And this idea of making a peaceable kingdom, even though uh, he was really just being forced to play by the Delaware's rules, is something that will live on throughout Pennsylvania's history, even, I would argue, still till today. So when, when this trouble commences, there's the, the eastern Lenape and the western Lenape, who you refer to as the Ohioans. Mm -hmm. And is there, how are they governed, and is there a difference between them? What, 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 it's, what, it is what explains a, the split? It is a major ideological and political difference. Uh, and again, when we just use a term like Indians, we throw one big blanket over a very complicated situation and hopefully make it make sense. But if you look at what they're doing, there is a group of Indians, a faction of the Delaware, that will move far west. And the idea is to get as far away from Europeans as possible, to try and replicate the Lenape world they felt that they lost a hundred years earlier. They will settle in a number of villages in the Allegheny River Valley with isolation being their, their key goal. Villages like Sawkunk, which is today uh, near Beaver, Pennsylvania, 
uh, Logstown, which is near Ambridge, Pennsylvania, uh, Kuskuskies, which is Newcastle, Pennsylvania, Venango, which is Franklin, Pennsylvania, and the biggest, Catanning, which still holds that name. And they will reform a society there that is very hostile to outsiders. They're very distrustful, especially of the Penn family and the Pennsylvanians. Uh, and they just feel there's no possible way they could ever work with the Europeans from England, the Penn specifically, ever again. So they isolate themselves, they uh, enclave themselves, and they develop this very insular viewpoint. The Lenape in the, Delaware, in the, uh, in the Wyoming Valley, they're also hostile, but they, they feel like there is some common ground with the Europeans. So they can work with them. But if you had no love for the English or the Pens at all, then the Ohio country was your place. And they become so different in their viewpoint and their violent politics. I think you can call them the Western Delaware as a whole separate entity from the original uh, Wyoming Delaware that first were, were forced out of the, the area of Philadelphia. So what was there, the Western Lenape's relation to the Iroquois then? They were subjects and they were not happy to be so. The Iroquois and the English really, I think, were suffering from the same disorder. It's that there was an old way of life that they still had faith in that no one else did. If you think about the British, they believe the Americans are just happy to be British. And when the British have and when the Americans have legitimate grievances, they don't listen. And we get the American Revolution, the spirit of 1776. The Iroquois did the same thing to the Western Delaware. Uh, the idea that there are subjects, they're happy to be so because we're the Iroquois and we were so dominant for so long. They failed to see the rumblings beneath their feet. And when you have the arrival of what will become a world war, the Seven Years' War in 1754, 55, and 56, it just it, it splits the colony of Pennsylvania into component parts. And the old order dies and the new order will reform as a result. When you had the Western uh, Lenape starting to raid the settlements of the Scots-Irish in Pennsylvania, did that cause problems with the Iroquois? I mean, they weren't supposed to be declaring war on their own. By the time you get to 1754, the French are moving into what will today be Western Pennsylvania. Things are changing. The English and the Iroquois make a firm bond of friendship. 1755, the English will send one of their great generals, the commander of all forces in North America, Edward Braddock, into the Ohio country to attack one of these French settlements, Fort Duquesne, and he'll be destroyed. He'll die in, in, the, in the melee. And when that happens, the French finally get to reach into some of these uh, western Delaware villages. And they tell them, you know, as long as the English are on top, you will be a subject of the Iroquois, because the Iroquois and the English are allies. We can give you weapons. We can give you supplies. You might not love France, but we will make sure you have the weapons you need to fight your revolution against the Iroquois. And the best part, when the French win, we'll leave. The English will remain and take your land. We'll be trading partners, but you'll have your isolation that you want. So for the Iroquois, this is very dangerous for them because what is an empire without its subjects? Then you, your house of cards. So it's very much that feeling across the the frontier and, and across Pennsylvania. So, so the Western Lenape saw it as a rebellion against the Iroquois? It was just, it was an opportunity. The opportunity was there. They knew if, they were supposed to fight with the Iroquois, if against the French if necessary. But they knew that if the English won this war between the, the, Brit, between the British and the French, if the British win, their situation does not change. So the French were an opportunity for them. 
the French were their way to escape the yoke of the Iroquois. They didn't care about King Louis. They didn't care about that. Uh, they cared about being a free people. And this was their motive they had, and now their opportunity. So that's what this was about. That's why the Western Delaware and the other native peoples who lived in the West, we can call them collectively the Ohioans, that's why they sided with the French. The French were giving them weapons and supplies, but most importantly, the French promised to leave at the end and not take their land. And at the end, this is, this is about land. Before we get much farther, uh, you've been on this program before, but what do you do as a day job? Uh, I'm a history instructor at Robert Morris University. Uh, I, I moonlight on the Pennsylvania Cable Network. As yes, people might have seen you on Battlefield PA. The host if, of if Battlefield you, Pennsylvania. If people have not seen that, what, uh, what should they know about that series? Um, it is, it's the, I always say whenever I, if I take on a book or a project, I only do things that I would want to watch. And it is pure history. I think battlefields are great, read about them in books, but being on a battlefield, there's nothing like it. Seeing the land, feeling the breeze. We always film at about the same time of year. Uh, whether it's the Civil War, the French and Indian War, the Revolution, we've done the War of 1812, we've done uh, labor rebellions and, and religious street fights that turned out to be larger than, than your average fight. Uh, we just, we go to the place and we sit with the experts and we do a solid six, 60 minutes on the topic. So if you're not watching Battlefield Pennsylvania, it's a good time to jump on. You also do a history podcast? I'm the host of Wartime a history series. You can find it on iTunes, wartimepodcast.com, and we talk about all kinds of history subjects. It's just me. It's a radio program, uh, but we're coming up on 100 episodes. We have listeners around the world. I think it's the best history podcast on the web. I'm biased, but the reason I made it was because I wasn't happy with what was out there. So go on iTunes or wartimepodcast.com, and you can listen to it now. It's uh, almost 100 one-hour episodes, so plenty to take for your ride into work. Now getting back to your book, um, tell me about Shingus. Shingus is, if there is a leader of this Western Delaware movement, he's the guy. He's not a big man by stature by all accounts. He's a smallish figure, but he's very representative of how you become a leader in the Indian world. It's not hereditary, not necessarily. Uh, it's your actions. He lived in the old Pennsylvania. He chose to move west as one of these early refugees uh, or settlers. I think refugee is a good word for it. And he has become an ideological leader of this independence movement, this western Delaware movement. Uh, he's recognized uh, as a king, so to speak, by the Iroquois and by the British as a means of appeasing him to a degree. He speaks for his people, that means. Uh, but when the French come to his forethought, uh, he is able to recognize the opportunity here. So when there's a battle, when there's a raid into the frontier, which we'll talk about, he is always front and center. Uh, and he is a good person to focus in on in this book because if you study him, you'll really get a good sense of, of the entire Western Delaware movement in a much more complicated war. What kind of records are written about him? Very few. I'm very jealous of a lot of these people who study the Civil War, for example, and they have these mountains of journals. You know, this is what I thought when I charged the hill, and this is, I thought about my wife and my kids. I mean, all we have of, of Shingus is what Europeans said about him, and that is an incomplete story, and it's one of the real problems with studying Native history at this time. You lose it, but developing the skill set to identify it and milk all the information you can out of it is really essential, and you can't really learn how to do that unless you're doing it. 
So it's why the books I have written, I've written five books in the last six years, have been, have been so successful in that I have developed that skill. And it's, it's a practiced skill. You know, you're not born with it, so you can't really uh, brag about it. I mean, it's something that you have to put in the hours for. But now that I'm able to do it, I feel it's, it's a responsibility to do as much of it as I can. So I'd like to keep writing in the future if possible because there's a whole story there that needs to be told. So where do you find things written by the English about Chinggis? Mostly archives. You know, you're at a point now in, in this field, studying the 1750s, you are very rarely going to discover something new. They're there. We've had the sources. But I always say to my students and people at lectures, uh, history is not about finding something new. It's about looking at something old in a new way. And that's very much what we're doing here. We've had these sources for 250 years. Um, but a fresh set of eyes in history goes a really long way. And I think that's, that's what I've benefited from the most. What did you learn doing this book? Uh, I learned a great deal. I learned about politics. I learned that in these tumultuous times which we currently live in, and you can say that at any time, that's, that's the joke of it, <laughs> that it's all, it's all been done before. The same political fights, maybe different faces, um, have, been, have, been, have been fought. And when you see you know, the, the, the partisan games between parties today being played, obstruction for the sake of obstruction, and no one's innocent of that anymore. Uh, it's happening in this book in the 1750s. I mean, Philadelphia, it's the same thing. And, and I make sure to go deep into the politics in this book because I want people to see that as, as, as much of a chasm as there is between one party or another, that deal is always there somewhere. And if you can find it, you can really change history. Did Shingus ever take on the Iroquois directly, or did he just attack the, the European settlements just to prove that he could? There was never a military scrap or skirmish between the Ohioans and the Iroquois. Uh, they would have been on different sides of different armies. But the French had a very clear tactic, not just for the western Delaware, but for their allies around the world. Because the Seven Years' War, that's what this is a part of, is fought in India, Africa, the Caribbean. It's fought in North America and South America. And what the French were doing was basically outsourcing the fighting. So if you're the French and you're in Canada, you could attack Philadelphia. It'd be incredibly difficult. And people in Philadelphia thought it might happen. But it's much easier just to let the dogs of war loose, the natives on the frontier, let them torture Pennsylvania. You can focus on defending your forts in Canada or maybe attacking some important British forts. Um, but the western Delaware will be released over the mountains into the settlements of Pennsylvania. And they'll cause chaos. And they'll murder and they'll kill and they'll raid. And again, it will push Pennsylvania's politicians to a breaking point. You're going to have mobs forming to march on Philadelphia from the frontiersmen we've talked about, the Scots-Irish, the Germans. When the Germans are marching, you're in trouble because they're a pretty peaceful lot normally. And that's what the French were doing. It's about causing chaos. But if there was going to be fighting in Pennsylvania, outsource it to the western Delaware. So they were much, the, Del the western Delaware were busy fighting the, the Pennsylvanians, not so much um, the Iroquois. So how powerful were the Quakers in the assembly at the time? Because you had the Pens who didn't want to be taxed and the Quakers who didn't want to fight in response to the Indian <laughs> raids. It is uh, if you'll indulge me, I, mean, we, I, can, I can lay it all out. Say whatever you want. Uh, because it's, it's, it's important and, it's, it, and, and it goes deeper than how far we usually go. There are two major political parties in Pennsylvania in the 1750s. The Quaker Party, 
which obviously have the name Quaker in them. Their religion was a big part of that. And the proprietary party. Remember, William Penn and his sons were the proprietors. So you have a party that represents William Penn's Quaker faith and their interests, and you have the proprietary party who represents the Penn family interest, which is almost all financial, by the way. Don't tax us. If you're a low-tax person, if you were using today's vernacular, a 1% person, you're in the proprietary party. But most people aren't. So what you have is the Quakers will dominate the People's Assembly because most people aren't wealthy and don't benefit from the proprietary party's policies. And were the Quaker Party pacifists? If you go to the museums, if you go to the tours of Philadelphia, they will say that. But the reality is by 1750, the Quaker Party has such a monopoly on power in the assembly uh, that if you want to be anybody in politics and you can't break through to the, the very wealthy class of the proprietary party, you have to be in the Quaker Party. So most people in the Quaker Party, most famously Benjamin Franklin, by the 1750s, don't give a lick about William Penn's religion or his pacifism. They're much more an anti-proprietary party. They're there because they believe, you know, using today's words, the rich need to pay their fair share in the colony. There are some die-hard religious hardliners in the Quaker Party. They are a minority, but they're enough of a minority that they can gum up the works for any legislation they don't want. So to be in the Quaker Party anymore is not a religious adherence to, to pacifism. Quakers believe that all human beings have the divine light of God in them. So to kill a person is to kill the light of God. So Pennsylvania never had an, a military, never, not a single military. Uh, and William Penn designed it that way. So by the time you get to the 1750s, you have Indian raids coming in from the West. You have people dying on the frontier saying, please protect us. And you have this group of people that Benjamin Franklin calls stiff rumps in the, in the assembly that say, we won't vote for any military action ever. And it freezes up the government. The proprietary party's in favor of it. Most of the Quaker party is in favor of it. Because remember, they're not religiously affiliated with Quakerism. The difference is, who's going to pay for it? In, the, in 1755, there's going to be a, a, an outcry from the frontier, defend us from these Indian attacks. Because again, the English aren't being attacked. It's, it's the settlers being attacked. And the Quaker party says, we'll do it. The proprietary party says, we'll do it. Where they hit a roadblock is, who's going to pay for it? The Quakers will say to the Penn family, you're paying for it. Tax of your states. Uh, Penn's appointed governor, Robert Hunter Morris, will say, I can't sign anything that taxes the Penns. So that's the split. So the, the origins of the Quaker party were pacifism, and, and Quakerism, but by this point, it's in name only. Did the English have forts in the Pennsylvania frontier? There was really nothing of that sort when this war starts. October 16th, uh, 1755, Penn's Creek is raided by Shingus and his warriors. And where's Penn's Creek? Uh, Penn's Creek today is um, central Pennsylvania. You're talking right over the mountains. Uh, there is a marker on the site. The name of the town escaped me because it's a lot of rural area out there. So it's sort of one of these situations. It, it, the marker would be on a road, not near any specific town. Um, but Scots-Irish families are living there. The, uh, the, the warriors come in, they raid, they kill, they take captives back to Catanning. Catanning is where sort of like the heart of this whole movement is. Uh, and people start to clamor for rights. The frontiersmen will say, these Scots-Irish Presbyterians, you need to do something to defend us. Uh, in Philadelphia, it's government as usual. 
they can't get a deal done. Uh, the proprietary party is very quick to say, though, it's these pacifist Quakers that are the problem. So now the proprietary party has a loyal base amongst the frontier. These people are, these hardline Scots-Irish are now proprietary people. Um, but that's the issue they have. There's no military. There's no military force. And the hardline Quakers won't go for that. They ultimately do sort of come to an agreement that they can do something, and that something is to build forts, to your question. And they look at where these forts could be built, and they say, well, Mother Nature has given us this great fortification in the form of the Appalachian Mountains. Let's just build a select few forts at the major mountain passes that the natives are using to cross over. And you'll see in, in the uh, spring of 1756 the construction of these forts garrisoned with a skeleton crew of men. But, you know, when you have Virginia putting up hundreds of troops under guys like George Washington, and you have New York gathering up troops, uh, and the British are saying to Pennsylvania, what are you doing? They're sort of saying, well, we have these, we built these forts, maybe that might do something. What would a fort have looked like? <laughs> you, if you were being attacked by these Indians and you saw what they built, you wouldn't have been very happy about it. <laughs> it's popsicle sticks in the woods. You know, it's, it's timbers cut down. There's probably a stockade. Most of these were built really fast. Um, they would not, as time would tell, be able to fend off really any kind of attack. What they did do was made people feel safer. But even then, whenever one of these forts will fall, it reveals just how weak the position really is. It makes it so that in Pennsylvania, a place that for almost 100 years there's never been uh, an army marching under its flag because of its adherence to William Penn's legacy, which is long gone. Uh, you have to do something to defend your people, and those forts just aren't enough. But if you would have seen one of these forts, uh, I don't think you would have slept any better. How, how did Benjamin Franklin become Colonel Franklin? One of the grand bargains that's made, it's one of the most controversial parts of the book, and as far as I can tell, my research is some of the only research on it, was that in 1755, there's an effort to raise 60,000 pounds for the defense of Pennsylvania. It's called the Militia Bill. And it's the first money ever accrued for defense of the colony. This is William Penn's peaceable kingdom. There is no, there is no military action. And the chief voice of the assembly of the Quaker party is Benjamin Franklin. Long before the revolution, it's Benjamin Franklin. He puts together a bill for 60,000 pounds. He uh, asks that 5,000 of it come from taxing William Penn's lands, or Thomas Penn's lands. Uh, and the bill's vetoed by the governor. He says, I can't raise any money that's going to come from Penn's lands. People will continue to die on the frontier. In Lancaster, there's word coming that some of the Germans living there are going to march into Philadelphia and burn it down if they don't do something to defend it. So. And this is one of the most controversial points, I think, in the history of the colony. It's a stalemate for weeks and then for months. And then finally, out of the blue, uh, the governor, Robert Hunter Morris, comes out with a letter saying, I've been authorized to give you a one-time gift from Thomas Penn of 5,000 pounds, which will fulfill his obligation of his lands. But it wasn't a real gift of 5,000 But it wasn't a real <laughs> gift. As it turned out, he was just... Uh, it was the rent that was owed to him in the colony, so he was transferring the rent to them. But at that point, Franklin said, listen, we have to pick our fights. We need some action. This is as good as we'll get for now. Um, and it shows you how petty politics can be. I mean, 
this one issue froze the entire thing, and a one-time gift of 5,000 pounds does it. So that will allow for militias to form in, in, the, in the colony. This is not, this is a half measure. But Franklin is given command uh, of, a, of a small group of frontiersmen to go to a northern settlement uh, called Nadenhutten amongst the Germans, and he, and he lives there. He doesn't fight anyone. You know, it's, it's a political appointment. Uh, but it's, it's very much a show to, to, for both parties. They were trying to do something here. Until they can come to terms on how you're going to fund a long-term military solution, the bloodshed will continue. So is there ultimately a long-term solution? It's not one that uh, is, is, is very satisfying. I mean, there isn't a grand bargain to tax pens estates that the Assembly enjoys. The way it basically breaks down is, um, there will be a, a series of raids on the frontier in 1756. Fort Granville, which is the biggest fort they built the previous year, will be annihilated uh, by a warrior that is probably second only to Shingus, named Captain Jacobs or Tawea. And this puts the heat back on Philadelphia. Do something, get a deal done. And it brings all hands on, decks, on deck, but basically what happens is um, Someone will write a letter to, to England saying that these Quakers, the pacifists, it's a minority, in, in, in Philadelphia are, are making defense of the colony untenable. And the king announces that he and his council will review whether or not the Quaker party should be outlawed totally. When that happens, the pacifist Quakers in the assembly, which are a minority, uh, see the writing on the wall. Even if they aren't outlawed, they've lost the faith of the people. And they do this like bold resignation, as, as so many politicians have done. We're going to leave on our own terms. And Benjamin Franklin wins the day. He has control of the party. Again, he calls them the stiff rumps. These religious hardliners are gone. Now they can start to work on a true military solution without having to cater to the pacifists in his party. When that happens, the governor, Robert Hunter Morris, is more than willing to play ball. There is some dispute over who will control the money will be the governor or the assembly. It's always supposed to be the governor. The assembly demands they want to control the money, but there's, there's not enough political support to really keep that up. So by the time you get to the summer of 1756, uh, Pennsylvania finally has a real colonial militia for the first time in 80 years. How long had these raids, these settlement raids gone on before Pennsylvania did something about it? It would be weekly. I mean, just to give you an idea of how horrible it was, it was weekly from October 16th, 1755, um, until the passage of that of that true militia bill, which wasn't until uh, June of or July rather uh, of 1756. Any idea how many settlers died during that? It's probably incalculable. We know that uh, from the numbers that we have, which are in the records, which aren't many, um, you're talking about hundreds of people killed. You're talking about uh, hundreds of people taken captive into the wilderness of the Ohio country uh, by, by the Delaware warriors. It's just uh, one, one Quaker described the frontier as a theater of bloodshed and rapine. I mean, it was, it was, an, it was a nightmarish situation for a group of, of citizens who were non-combatants. These were Indian warriors who were good at what they did, raiding secretly, unexpectedly, and just wreaking havoc on the frontier. Clearly something needed to be done, but the numbers we'll probably never know for certain. Can you explain the significance of Carlisle at the time? 
Yeah, if you can envision Pennsylvania, the colony did not extend beyond the mountains. Carlisle was sort of the last true city of Pennsylvania before you got to the frontier. It was built roughly, it was built uh, hastily, but most of these other settlements are just a couple of farms. Carlisle has walls around it. Carlisle has uh, wooden and, and brick buildings at this time. Uh, it is considered by many to be like a wild west town, but it's very clear it's the future of the colony. If it's going to go west, Carlisle is one of these places that needs to exist. So it's like the sort of de facto capital of the, these frontier territories. And the warriors of the Delaware knew that. And they thought if they could destroy Carlisle, that is effectively cutting off the future of the colony before it ever has a chance to really pick up. Did the Indian raids ever reach Carlisle? There was intense fear of it. Uh, many people were writing to the governor saying, do something, defend us somehow. Carlisle is in danger. Carlisle was the, the big piece that could not fall. Uh, but it was never attacked directly. Tell me about John Armstrong. John Armstrong was the man of, of Carlisle. He worked closely with Robert Hunter Morris, the governor. He was a proprietary party man to the core. He was from, from uh, of Scots-Irish stock himself, born, born in Europe. Uh, so he always had that accent with him even when he came here. He designed Carlisle. He was the architect. He laid it out. He was the chief surveyor of the colony of Pennsylvania. And he was one of these natural leaders of the frontier for a lot of these reasons. And when it did come time to finally respond to the Delaware, it came time to fight, there was no doubt he was the leader. He was a party man. He put the proprietary party's interest first. There's the interest of the governor. Um, limited military experience, but he had the respect of his people. And then later on in life, he was in the Continental Army at the Battle of Brandywine? It's, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, after what he'll do in our story, he'll go on to serve in the Continental Army with George Washington. Uh, he'll serve in the Continental Congress. He'll serve in the Confederation Congress. I mean, he, it's, it's, a, it's an impressive life. Why isn't he more famous? Uh, you know, that's a good question. They named Armstrong County after him. Hmm. You know, that's, that's my original stomping grounds. Um, but it's one of those things, the revolution has so many big names. And this time period is so misunderstood, if understood at all. You know, the heroes of this war kind of get lost. But he distinguished himself well beyond the Seven, year, uh, the, the seven Years' War into the American Revolution. So it's one of those issues. In this case, though, he's a good fit for Pennsylvania. He's a numbers man. He's a logistical mind. He likes to have his ducks in a row. He likes to know how many soldiers he's going to have. He likes to know how much supplies, how much food is available. He is, he is a, one of these logistical wizards. So when your army, as we'll see, is going to be made up of just frontiersmen, you want a, a person like that in power. So your subtitle of your book is The Catanian Raid of 1756, so we assume there was a raid on Catania. There was, yeah. It was the first time that Pennsylvania ever had a, a military force march under its flag, and it was the great strike back for what has been all over, at that point, almost a year of, of uncontested killings by the, by the Ohioans on the frontier. Did they, they leave from Carlisle? They'll, the army comes together at different points, but it breaks down like this. John Armstrong is, is now Lieutenant Colonel John Armstrong of the Pennsylvania militia. Never happened before. Um, so he's the highest ranking official in the militia, officer in the militia. He will be given an order to accrue 350 men, seven companies, 50 men apiece. Uh, and he wants that because, again, he's a numbers guy. He's a logistical guy. He's a road builder. He doesn't necessarily lead as, a, as, a, as we think of as a military leader, but he knows he needs those numbers. Um, he has to pick 
leadership from the frontier to lead the men. Some of that's built in, some of it's new. He has four men uh, that are already garrisoning those forts that were built the previous year. Uh, men like Hans Hamilton, Hugh Mercer will be a revolutionary hero later. His brother, George Armstrong, uh, will be one of them. Edward Ward will be one of them. He will lead one of these 50-man battalions himself. Uh, and then he gets two other figures, which I think is really interesting and really speaks to the frontier. One is the sheriff of Cumberland County, John Potter. Uh, this is a man that is not a, a military person. He's civilian law enforcement. But to be sheriff, you need the trust of all of the people of the county. He's Scots-Irish. He's their guy. And the seventh leader he picks uh, is a man named John Steele. He's a minister. They call him the fighting parson. Um, Iron John Steele sometimes. And he is like a guy that if he was around today would have, I think, certainly had a, a political radio show. I mean, he's fiery. He gets heated up. People love him. No military background. But if you can get a force of 350 men together and you can march into the wilderness and attack what's considered to be the heart of darkness of this whole thing, Katanning, that one town where the captives are taken, where Shingus lives, where all these raids are coming from, where the French are aiding them. Uh, if you can destroy that city, it would be such a statement. And that's the goal, that's the target, and this is like the super group he kind of puts together to go and march and do it. We won't have time to talk about the whole raid, but I do want to ask you, you mentioned Hugh Mercer. Mercer. And would you tell the story about what happened to him? Hugh Mercer is... Uh, is a person that in 1755, he's an immigrant, Scotland, um, he fought with Edward Braddock. He fled Scotland as a fugitive, um, but he, he fought with Braddock. He was a doctor. He was a leader of one of these forts that were built a year later in Pennsylvania. Uh, and he will lead what, it, by all accounts, is a group of 50 of the most um, ragtag soldiers they have. These are not professional soldiers. He has no faith in them. Mercer gets shot in the battle, breaks his arm. Uh, he goes back with his men, and they basically abandon him on the battlefield. He rolls off the road. He sleeps uh, until nightfall. He travels from Kittanning to basically today Breezewood, traveling only by night, eating uh, freshwater mollusks. One time he picks up a rattlesnake and eats it raw, and he's, he's, he makes it back to that, the Fort, Fort Littleton, which is there, and he's saved. Uh, but it's like a remarkable survival story, and the whole mil the whole force leaves him behind. He'll go on to be a hero of the revolution. He'll die a very heroic death, by all accounts, um, with fighting with George Washington. He becomes good friends with Washington, but he's one of these sort of larger-than-life figures, and this is his start. His start, you know. So what he'll become is bigger, but he he really cuts his teeth here in the Catanning campaign. So the actual raid on Kitani, we will not have time to talk about because it takes up a big part of your book, but does, does that stop the Indian raids? It gets to the core of the book, and it's that it doesn't. Um, you have all this to do, to make the whole book simple, a big to-do, uh, about politics and arranging revenue and sources. The Kitani raid happens. Kitani is totally burned down. It's completely destroyed. Um, blew up a lot of gunpowder. Gunpowder that the French gave these warriors blew up in the warriors' cabins and homes. It's gone. The village is gone by the time they leave. Um, and the issue you face is you have to gauge the success. Well, their number one target, as the book will lay out, is to save captives. There's over 150 captives in Katanning. They come back with seven. Four of them were killed in the retreat. Okay, so that's not successful. Uh, the village is destroyed. Shingis survives. He he's, lives to fight many other days. 
Uh, Captain Jacobs, the second best warrior there, is killed. So that's a success. Uh, but the raids actually increase the following year in 1757. Less people do die, but the raids will go up in, in terms of number after that. But when they come back to Philadelphia from the campaign, according to the people there, it's a rousing success. The first military medallion ever, ever minted in North America is minted because of the Catania raid. Thomas Penn comes back from England to give John Armstrong a, a ceremonial belt and a sword. It's just this rousing victory. And it's a little bit like the Doolittle raid in World War II. It was done to cause damage. It had mixed results, but it was much more of a statement of this is the way things are going to be from now on. But as far as an effective raid, um, that's, that's, even John Armstrong will write privately. He's not certain that it achieved really what it, what, what it was supposed to. What happened to Shingus? Shingus, uh, if you can if visualize Catanning, most of Catanning uh, is on the, on the eastern bank of the Allegheny River. There's a small portion on the western bank. Shingus lives over there. The fighting was in the eastern bank, so he gets out of the battle. But he'll go on to continue leading raids. In 1758, the western Delaware will make peace with, with the British. They'll stop fighting. Uh, the French lose their alliance, so Pennsylvania's frontiers calm down. That same year, John Forbes will march out of uh, Philadelphia and Carlisle and capture Fort Duquesne. So Pennsylvania's basically won. The Seven Years' War will continue for three more years. Shing is kind of the problems we talked about. Falls out of the historical record. He's not brought to justice? He's not brought to justice. He would be very much a, a figure that would have been recognized as the face of the terror of the frontier. Uh, there is some evidence that in 1763, after Fort Pitt is built, that he has something to do with the attack on Fort Pitt, but you're not going to have that 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 moment of closure with with an Indian leader like that because it's the it's the inherent problems built into studying Indian people. So Shingus is never captured. There is a $700 bounty on his head uh, during the time of this book, but that'll never be collected. Does Shingus ever settle things with the uh, Iroquois? Uh, that's the that's the end of an order. I mean, after the Seven Years' War. Uh, the, uh, the, the Iroquois domain over the people of the Ohio country is virtually destroyed. They may control the mid name, but uh, that taste of freedom was so strong. And that's part of the reason that as soon as the Seven Years' War ends, the Ohioans who rebelled against the Iroquois, even though the Iroquois and British patch things up, they start what we call Pontiac's Rebellion. Those same warriors continue the fight against the British as they've done for the last 10 years. So that's the end of that old order, and that's a lot of ways what this book is. The, the political grounds of Pennsylvania shift, and then ultimately it collapse and a whole new order comes out. Is, if you go to Catanning today, is there anything of this to see? It takes some imagination. Um, you know, most of Catanning was gone that day, September uh, of 1756. But if you go there today, the landscape still looks the same. The river, the Allegheny at that point, it's not like the Allegheny in Pittsburgh where it's it's hemmed in and modernized. It's still a very much a naturally flowing river. Natural banks are still there. So you can stand by the river. You can see the rising nature of the ground, which the soldiers talk about. You can rebuild it in your mind. Um, but as far as structures go, buildings go, I mean, it's a, it's a modern town now. Well, if we had more time, we could talk about the raid itself, but you'll have to read the book if you want to find that out. The book is War in the Peaceable Kingdom, the Catanning Raid of 1756, and we've been talking with Brady Kreitzer. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. 
We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.